You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 13. You'll find this on page 921 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to be reading verses 4 through 12. Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. Hear the word of God. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. If you have seen adaptations of the Lord of the Rings, you've seen some pretty special effects. The talented people who made those movies brought everything to life. Hobbits and elves and dwarves and wizards and orcs and demons and talking trees. And the supernatural seems so real, but of course, then when the lights go up and it's all over, you realize that it was simply a show. Pure fiction. The whole thing was make-believe. It's good entertainment, I have to admit, but that's all it is because there are no true mysteries or marvels in the Lord of the Rings. But not so with the Bible. God reveals in Scripture true mysteries and genuine marvels. Paul even tells Timothy, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. What compares with the eternal Son of God assuming human nature. We hear that so often, and yet how often do we stop and contemplate that? It's a mystery. It's supernatural. It's a true blue miracle. 
the eternal Son of God, became man. The same God who created the universe submitted to the law and died on a cross and rose from the grave. And there is no parallel in this cosmos to the astonishing events of redemption. And the work that Jesus continues to do reveals even more marvels for us to consider. They show how the forces of God can easily overcome the forces of evil in the name of Jesus. We saw how the Spirit directed the church to set apart and to send out Barnabas and Saul. God chose them, the church commissioned them, the Spirit sends them. And so the work of the Antioch congregation was actually the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the implication that I draw. He is pleased to work in and through the church as he applies redemption across the globe. Paul even says this in Ephesians 3. It's one of the most amazing texts, to me anyway. He says, through the church, something like this, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we've noted this before, but the angels who serve Christ in governing the cosmos learn about redemption from congregations like this. From what goes on in the church, they come to know the mystery of redemption. And so what a privilege it is to be a part of the church. (laughs) It fascinates angels. And as they watched, the Spirit dispatched these missionaries to evangelize the Gentiles. And this means, by the way, that when we elect and ordain and install men in office, that's God at work. We just did this weeks ago. So let's never disdain the crucial work of preparing and examining and ordaining men to office. That's God at work. And so the Holy Spirit sends these missionaries who land at Cyprus, they traverse the island, and striking to me is the fact that this is the first time Saul is identified by his Roman name, Paul. That's how we typically refer to him. And it makes sense because having embarked on a Gentile mission, he prudently uses his Roman name. In 1 Corinthians, he says this, I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I may save some. So this means if I have to use my Roman name, I'll do it. Because what's in a name? It wasn't a compromise of anything that really mattered. It opened doors to him that might be closed if he used his Hebrew name, Saul, So insofar as this doesn't compromise the gospel, he'll be all things to all men. If you have to grow a beard, grow a beard. I remember seminary friends who were going over to Afghanistan. They had to grow a beard because that was the culture. If you have to wear native clothing, wear native clothing. If you have to go to the neighbor's cookout, go to the cookout. Too often I think we want them to conform to us rather than to convert to Christ. Do they have to adopt our rules? Do they have to embrace our customs or measure up to our standards? Of course not. 
They don't conform to our way of thinking. They become disciples of Jesus. And Paul understood this. That was his aim. And so he allows his Roman name to be used. And the Holy Spirit leads these two missionaries into conflict with the forces of evil. It was a little like Jesus being led into the wilderness to confront Satan. Here, Paul and Barnabas were led into confrontation with black magic. It's a real thing. It's performed by the powers of darkness, black magic. The magicians of Egypt, you'll remember, had real power to work real wonders. Their staffs became serpents. That's black magic. They turned water into blood. And on the island of Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas encounters this real magician. It was an island that had been under Roman jurisdiction from about 22 BC, maybe 60 years. And at the time, it was governed by a proconsul named Sergius Paulus. They landed at Salamis, a flourishing commercial center, and their strategy was to proclaim Christ in the centers of worship. They would meet local God-fearers there. The Jews would gather, the God-fearing Gentiles would come, they'd meet them, and then they'd reach out into the local community. And having formed a small core group, Jacob can appreciate this, having formed a small core group, the open field work could begin, and they'd establish churches. And there were many synagogues, throughout the island. They cross the island. They arrive at Paphos, which was the seat of government, roughly 90 miles away. And because it was the high point of the Cyprus ministry, they defeat the false prophet, which Luke records. And more importantly, I believe, is that the proconsul himself was converted to Christ. They found this magician named Bar-Jesus, And how they met this sorcerer, Luke doesn't tell us, but their paths crossed. He was a member of the proconsul's entourage because ancient Romans could be very superstitious. They did respect divination. They understood that black magic was a real thing, not to be trifled with. And so Sergius Paulus retained Elymas for working magic and telling the future, And clearly, he was smooth and clever and very knowledgeable, and the work was lucrative. He could make a very comfortable living being a magician at court. And so when Paul and Barnabas arrive preaching the gospel, he feels threatened. You know, Paul tells Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Follow the money. My son tells me that. Always follow the money. Elymas was worried. If the proconsul is persuaded, Elymas could lose his livelihood because Christianity and the black arts are diametrically opposed. They are antithetical. There is no common ground between the true faith and black magic. And Elymas is smart enough to realize that his career was in jeopardy. He could lose his position at court and have to scratch out a living someplace else. But what's fascinating is that Sergius Paulus is interested enough to listen attentively to the terms of the gospel. He heard what Paul and Barnabas had to say. 
He paid attention to the word of God. And according to promise, the spirit of God was at work in his heart. Through the preaching of the gospel, we find the spirit was sovereignly and sweetly drawing that man to Christ. And the proconsul's heart was changed and his mind was enlightened and his will was renewed. And at the very same time, Elymas, the magician, is opposing the apostolic ministry. It says he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That was a serious mistake. The Bible says that God opposes the proud. And so Paul fixes his gaze on that magician and he denounces him as the son of the devil. And with our English translation, we miss some of the irony here. The name Bar-Jesus means son of the Savior. Well, here he's called son of the devil. The exact opposite. The man was wicked, full of deceit and villainy. And when the apostle Paul pronounced judgment, Elymas was instantly afflicted. It says, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And it was an impressive display of divine power. It silenced the magician. God is not to be trifled with. It happens all the time in our day. He searches the heart and he weighs the motive. The magician may have exploited the proconsul, but he could not stand before the Lord. And I think it's very suitable that his physical blindness was a mirror to his spiritual blindness. Jesus said to the man born blind, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And that declaration was gloriously fulfilled in the life of this magician. But as is so often the case with God, there was mercy mingled with judgment. Notice how his blindness would be temporary. Paul says it would be only for a time. We don't know why. Perhaps it was used to drive him to Christ. We're never told. We do know that if this magician remained impenitent, it would simply be a precursor of a greater penalty to come. Should Elymas refuse to repent, he would be cast out into outer darkness, never to see another thing the rest of eternity. But none of this was lost on Sergius Paulus. The power of Christ drew his attention because black magic is nothing compared to the omnipotence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The magician could not even find his way. And it was a stunning triumph. In more ways than one, because a soul was saved. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Did you see that? What is it about that that strikes you? He was astonished not at the miracle. He was astonished at the teaching of Christ. And that's what convinces me that Sergius Paulus was really converted. 
You see, all sorts of people marveled at the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. But only those who embraced the teaching were truly converted. This is what Elder Gilliland read. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. You see, the world is full of deceivers. And deception is one of the devil's schemes. And if he can subvert the faith, he can destroy your love for Jesus. Because your love is an expression of your faith. It is on the confession of Christ that the church is built. And if that confession at any point is distorted, the church and its members will be in ruins. That's why Jude tells us, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for it. That's what those vows meant today. The faith is the teaching of Christ, appointed to guide us to the Lord. It is that essential teaching about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It is the gospel that God employs to draw sinners to Christ. And insofar as you and I embrace that sincerely, we have fellowship with the Father and his Son. Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man, and he embraced the gospel. Is that not important for people to understand in a charismatic age? I hope you don't mind me characterizing this as a charismatic age, but that's what it is. People, I was there. People run to and fro in search of the latest demonstration of the charismatic gifts. And they are keenly interested in extraordinary events, and they often base their faith upon those. And at the same time, week after week, they pay scant attention to the preaching of God's word, the thorough, consistent exposition of the inspired word of God. And in so doing, what they do is emphasize signs over substance. And they risk missing the one thing that is necessary. You see, the magician's blindness grabbed the proconsul's attention, but it was the teaching that saved him. That's what gripped his soul. That's what changed his heart and brought him to Christ in the power of the Spirit. He was a new creature in Christ. And thus, the one man lost his sight while the other man began to see. What is that hymn? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I think one of the observations that can be made is that we should appreciate the superiority of Christianity over all other religions. Now, I know in this day of toleration that that might be offensive to some. People think that all religions are equally valid and should be afforded equal esteem. But Christianity easily triumphed over pagan magic and the superstition of Elemas. 
And the Christian religion is superior to all other religions and philosophies and disciplines of this world. Just consider the prophet Elijah's triumph over the 450 priests of Baal that was read. Ahab was leading the northern kingdom into mixing the true religion with the false. And Elijah was determined to show the absurdity of having it both ways. So it was brought to a test. Whichever deity would answer with fire from heaven, let him be God. Baal was given all the advantages. On his side was the king and the people and the priests. And God was represented by one man recently returned from hiding. Elijah's altar drenched with gallons of water so that the sacrifice would be waterlogged. Baal's priests call upon their God morning to night, and the idol was mute. Elijah invites the people to come near, and he calls upon Yahweh, and this is what it says. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Everything was consumed. Not just the sacrifice, but the wood and the stones and the dust. It was a mighty demonstration of invincible power. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. And the same thing happened on Cyprus, but with different characters. Paul and Elymas, they're confronting each other. And it proves a point that Christianity is superior to all other religions of man. It is the only religion in which God comes to man. Every other religion on earth tells man to go find God. Christianity alone is the one that gives a troubled soul the assurance of eternal life. And then you ask me, well, why do false religions seem to grow and spread so rapidly? Well, because sin is at work. And false religions are very pleasing to the flesh. If you want something to gratify your sinful desires, you can find it. The religions of this world have a smorgasbord of offerings. They can feed your pride. They can gratify your greed. They can indulge your sinful desires. Because deception is one of the devil's schemes used from the beginning. And Christian discipleship starts with self-denial and taking up our cross. And that requires a new birth and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But I also think that some have failed to consider the superiority with which it was established. You know, the French bishop and statesman Talleyrand, I don't know if you've heard of him before, but the French bishop Talleyrand once received a delegation of theophilanthropists. And what they were, were a deistic sect founded in France sometime during the 18th century, a new religion. This sect consulted with Talleyrand as to the best way of introducing their proposed new religion. How do we do it? And after hearing them, Talleyrand <laughs> answered this way. Gentlemen, I refer you to a historical fact which may give you some light as to the best way to establish a new religion in the world. When Christ undertook to establish Christianity, 
He was crucified. He lay in the grave three days. He rose again and ascended to heaven. Now, if you would succeed, I advise you to do the same. No other religion on earth can lay claim to such an inauguration. But perhaps others have never considered its superiority as to its truth and power. You know, the devil's power can enable his followers to do some amazing things. But we're told that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And the plagues on Egypt humbled their gods and displayed the superiority of Yahweh. Their magicians could turn staffs into snakes, but their snakes were devoured. The true religion is superior. It's the only religion that has the whole system of doctrine that is true. It teaches the truth about the origin and the nature and the ultimate purpose of life. Elymas and his false claims were on one side. Paul, as a servant of Christ, was on the other. And moved by the Spirit, he was triumphant in the name of Jesus. Let me illustrate as I close by telling a true story. This is true. And I've told this before, so if you've heard it, forgive me for saying it again, but I think it applies. It was at a 19th century World's Fair. There was a conference on world religions. And representatives from all the major religions of the world were seated on the stage. Each one of those representatives prepared to speak about the virtues of his respective faith. They were lined up on the stage. When all of those representatives had spoken except one, the crowds began to get up and to leave because the last man, the last representative was a Christian theologian. Well, they had heard enough of that. When the good doctor approached the podium to speak for Christ, he began by telling the story of Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's Macbeth. Well, they had never heard something like this. He explained how Lady Macbeth suffered from intense pangs of guilt. And he described how she had murdered the king and had gone crazy trying to get the imaginary bloodstains off her hands. She was continually washing, always washing her hands, trying to get them clean, but never able to find a success. Well, all of a sudden, the crowds began to return to their seats. They hadn't heard a Christian representative speak like this. And he went on saying that her conscience was so plagued with guilt that she literally went insane. Then he turns to his fellow speakers and he asks them one by one, does your religion, is it able to cleanse Lady Macbeth's spots? Not one of those speakers uttered a word. Finally, after going through all of those representatives of the world's religions, he turns to 1 John 1, 9, and he reads these words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
No other world religion could clean, can clean Lady Macbeth's spots. But Christianity guarantees the forgiveness of sins, and that is good news. It bears witness to the Christ whom to know is eternal life, the glory of Christianity, and he's the truth of its superiority. Search the ages and places of the world and you'll find none greater because he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. How thankful we should be for this demonstration of the superiority of Christianity over everything else. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the inestimable gift of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't deserve this. We deserve far less. But we're grateful this day that we've been able to gather in the name of Christ to worship you, to give thanks, to be led by the Holy Spirit. And we ask now that you'll receive our praise because we offer it not only in the name of Jesus Christ, but by the help of the Spirit with hearts full of gratitude. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.